Well, good morning. My name is Ryan Kelly. If I haven't met you yet, I'm the preaching pastor here. And it's my privilege to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, in chapter 21. Later in our service, we'll get to witness eight people being baptized. And I'm eager for that. But before that, I am eager to once again open God's Word together as we continue this series through the Gospel according to Matthew. For time's sake, I'll forego a formal introduction and just remind you of where we are in the story of the life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. In Matthew 21, we're now in Passion Week, as we Christians call it that week leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Jerusalem is bustling with visitors in town for the celebration of the Passover. And there is much clamor going on surrounding this Jesus, who many believe to be a prophet or even the Messiah. Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey, signaling his kingship. He received the people's praise. He entered the temple grounds and disgusted with how the religious leaders had turned the temple into a a place of business, he turned over the tables of the money changers and drove them out. He healed many. He taught right there at the temple. And it was then that the religious authorities came to him with that very important question we saw last week in verse 23. By what authority do you do these things, and who gave you that authority? Jesus refused an answer, at least for now. Instead, he told them a parable about two sons, verses 28 to 32. I won't review that parable for you. You can read it for yourself, or hopefully you heard it preached last week, or you can go find it and listen to it preached online. But I do want us to remember that question of verse 23, by what authority Jesus does these things, is still hanging in the air, unanswered by Jesus. And it's not until the end of chapter 25 that Jesus will fully and directly answer the question by what authority he does what he does. But in our passage for this week, he begins to hint at an answer to that question by what authority. This is the banner over this whole long section, this busy Tuesday, as we called it last week. By what authority does Jesus do what he does? Well, he tells another parable. Right on the heels of the parable of the two sons, this is the parable of the wicked tenants. So look down and follow along in your Bible, starting in verse 33. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Well, our passage has a single parable, but then discussion about that parable. So let's start with the parable itself. A story of a rejected son. A rejected son. That's the first of four headings that I have for us this morning. And this first one will take us the longest because we want to get our arms around the parable and understand it. A parable is a made-up story meant to illustrate truth in a provocative way. The scene, the the setting of Jesus' parables are usually taken from the stuff of everyday life in the ancient Middle East. This scene, in this parable, might be a little foreign to us today, but it wouldn't have been foreign to the first audience who heard Jesus speak it. In those days, a wealthy landowner would often lease out portions of his land to tenants, And they would work the land. And they would pay their rent, we could call it, to the owner at harvest time with crops, with fruit, with wine. And they would do this at an agreed-upon rate. In those days, it was usually somewhere between 25 and 50% of the offspring. And yet, sometimes, these tenant farmers wouldn't pay up. And then some confrontation and conflict would ensue. Now, you have to know a little thing about parables, a few things here and there that we'll talk about this morning. One is that not everything in a parable represents something else, but often there are several corresponding things, not just one. 
Several things in the story represent something else that's real. And so the landowner, the master of the house in our parable, represents God. And the vineyard represents Israel. You say, I didn't catch that in reading the passage. How do we know the vineyard is Israel? Well, any biblically literate Israelite back then would have been familiar with that Old Testament imagery used so often in the Old Testament for God's people that they were like God's vineyard and they were to produce fruit. Isaiah 5 is the place where we get the most of that kind of teaching. Let me just read it at length. Isaiah 5, 1 through 7, listen to this. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. Verse 4, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Yet, when I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? In other words, it only had bad fruit, not good fruit. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard, God says. I will remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I will break down the wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. You get the point. God's people were to bear fruit to God. They were to be fruitful for God. They were to live like they were connected to God. And God set them up for success. They were well-prepared, well-equipped in this vineyard to bear fruit. But so often in Israel's history, maybe especially in the days of Isaiah before the Babylonian captivity, God's people were not bearing fruit. And God was telling of judgment that was to come. Well, Jesus is is clearly building on Isaiah 5 with that vineyard imagery, but he's now adding to it. He adds to it with, um, at least for this one thing, wicked tenants. You see that? That wasn't in Isaiah 5, but Jesus is building on the, the parable of the Old Testament in Isaiah 5, adding these tenants. And they represent the religious leaders in Jesus' day, the very people that Jesus was addressing in Matthew 21. They were the ones who had been assigned to tend to God's vineyard, his people. They were the ones that were to cultivate things so that God's people bore fruit. Did they? No. In the parable, when it came time for harvest, to pay the owner of the land, servants of the master were sent out to get the rent, but instead of giving them any fruit, they killed the servants. The tenants killed the servants. And then this very patient master decides to send another round of servants, more in number than the first. But the tenants did the same to them. They killed the master rather than give to the master what was his due. 
By the way, the servants in the parable represent Old Testament prophets. They were the ones who had been so repeatedly sent to God's people, even to the leaders of God's people, representing God, speaking on behalf of God. But again and again, those Old Testament prophets were not only ignored, but they were beaten and killed. Jeremiah was beaten multiple times before he was stoned to death. Elijah and Amos were banished to live in caves after being tortured. Habakkuk and Zechariah were stoned to death. And Isaiah, most likely, was sawn in two. These were the servants of God, messengers of God, sent by God to stir up his vineyard for good fruit, and they were killed. As Jesus will just summarize it in Matthew 23, he'll say, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to it. Well, back to our parable. It reaches its climax then when the landowner, in verse 37, sends his son to the tenants. The tenants have already killed two groups of the master's servants. And now this unthinkably gracious, patient landowner sends his son as his representative in hopes that they will listen to him. So another thing you need to know about parables is that not everything in a parable has to be completely realistic. A parable builds on a real-world scenario, but then it can add some little unrealistic details in order to illustrate and drive home a point. And so when we look at this parable, we shouldn't think that this landowner, this master and father, is a rather naive, slow-witted man who couldn't see a pattern that two groups of servants were killed and now he's sending his son to the wolves? No, what, what we should see instead is an unthinkably, unimaginably patient, gracious landowner who sent his son even to these unthinkably wicked and senseless tenants. So verse 38, when the tenants saw the son, they said, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him especially for us on this side of the crucifixion of Jesus, we can see just how obvious it is what Jesus was illustrating here. He was speaking of himself. He is the son sent by his father to once again plead with wayward people to bear fruit and they killed him. We'll read later in Matthew, they even put him outside the city, just like in the parable, they put him outside the vineyard and then 
killed him. We should pause here just to note two big picture things that the parable illustrates. One is the nature of sin, and the other is the patience of God. The nature of sin is shown here in our passage in these men who refuse the master's authority. And they seek to overthrow that authority. They will not give the master his due. Perhaps they resent God's claim on their lives. They're driven by greed to have more, to get more. And if you say, well, not all sin is murderous. Yeah, but this is a helpful window into the heart of sin, the nature of sin. And I think we're helped to see sin in its extreme so that we might know that even the seedlings of the same stuff are in our own hearts. The Puritan John Owen said, every sin desires to be the utmost of its kind. You want to see your sin? Do you want to see the nature of sin, the nature of rebellion? It seeks to cast God away, to ignore his claim, and to even kill for that to happen. That's the nature of sin, but, but note well the patience of God. The God of the Bible, we are told, I love this word, he is long-suffering. He suffers long. He puts up with so much. The delay of his holy judgment on sin should be astounding to us. Romans 2 speaks of this, where Paul writes, that we shouldn't presume upon the patience and forbearance of God. His patience and the delay of his judgment is meant to lead us to repentance. And if it doesn't, then that forbearance, that patience, that delay of judgment is actually a heaping up of the judgment that eventually is coming. Because though this God is so patient, his patience will not be forever. There is coming a time of reckoning. So after telling this parable, Jesus asks these religious leaders a follow-up question in verse 40. What will the landowner do to such tenants? And they answer boldly in verse 41, oh, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death. Caught up in the story and incensed by the obvious injustice, they don't see that their answer is self-incriminating. They're the tenants, and they have spoken about what they deserve. This whole scenario here is a lot like when the prophet Nathan came to confront King David in 2 Samuel 12, and the prophet Nathan told the story, a made-up story, a parable, about a man who stole 
a poor man's sheep, all that he had. David thinks that it's a, a real scenario in his kingdom. David said, the man will surely die for this. And the prophet said, you, O king, are the man. Well, that is a story of a rejected son. Now, secondly, and again, we'll move more quickly through these next three. They flow from the parable. Secondly, we have a scripture about a rejected stone. A rejected stone. Verse 42, notice that. Jesus said to them right after, Have you never read in the scriptures? And of course they had. They were religious leaders. They were scholars. He was saying, don't you know about this? Don't you know what it means and what it means for what's going on right now? And then he quotes from Psalm 118, which Micah read for us earlier. She read more than just this one verse, but here it is. Jesus quotes, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So now we have a switching of the word pictures from a, a rejected son to now a rejected stone. By the way, they're the same. We talked about this very verse just a few weeks ago when we were in 1 Peter 2. Because 1 Peter 2 also quotes this verse from Psalm 118. So I won't go into the same detail I did just a few weeks ago, but here's a little bit of detail. The imagery here is of general contractors. They're called builders in Psalm 118. Builders who are inspecting stones to determine which stone would be preferable for this all-important cornerstone. The first stone laid down, the biggest stone, the stone that sets the lines, the trajectory for all other stones and upon which all other stones lie and fit together. And so these general contractors evaluate possible cornerstones, and there's one specific stone that they have passed over, they have dismissed, they've rejected it. But that rejected stone in God's plan is actually the perfect cornerstone. It is God's doing. It is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, originally, that bit in Psalm 118 would have been applied to a Davidic king, possibly even King David himself. You think of his story. He was rejected by men, but he was chosen by God to be a cornerstone in God's plan for his time and for the future. Well, well, Jesus is taking that imagery from Psalm 118, but he's applying it to himself and to the very situation that's playing out in Jerusalem on that busy Tuesday. The builders, the general contractors, these religious leaders that Jesus speaks to, they are actively rejecting Jesus who is the true cornerstone. But in their very rejection of the cornerstone, God is establishing Jesus as the cornerstone. As I said a few weeks ago, 
Far from disqualifying Jesus from the cornerstone role, his death, his execution, his rejection is actually the means by which he's qualified to be the cornerstone. And so here is the subtle answer to that all-important question back in verse 23, the banner over all this material in Matthew 21 and 22. By what authority do you do this? For those who have ears to hear, Jesus is saying, he is the son sent from God, and he is the stone upon which God's plan is being laid down. Jesus' death was pure evil. His crucifixion was pure evil. But it was no accident. It certainly was no defeat. It was the plan all along. As he said back in chapter 20, verse 28, he came to be a ransom for many. A payment. A payment for those in bondage that they might go free. He gave his life. He died. And he came for that reason. Do you hear purpose in all that? No, it was the plan all along. They did nothing to him but that which he allowed them to do and was God's plan all along. And so the question for each of us, the question for the religious leaders as they were hearing Jesus speak these words that day, the question for us when we read of Jesus in the Bible or you hear of Jesus being taught like I'm trying to do right now, what do you see? What do you hear? Who is this Jesus? How do you view him? How will you respond to him? Will you reject him or will you receive him? Is he one to be dismissed, discarded, and done away with? Or is he the cornerstone of God's plan and the cornerstone of your life? Will you today, maybe for the first time, stand on him? All other ground is shifting sand. But Jesus, the cornerstone, is a solid rock. The wise man builds his life on the rock. And Jesus is that rock. If you will not receive him, well, then notice verse 44. The one who falls on this stone, trips over the stone, stumbles at this stone, he will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Those two lines come from Isaiah 8. In Daniel 2, respectively, some of you were in the equipping class in this room just a, a few minutes ago, and you were in Daniel 2, and you know about the, the big stone coming that crushes those who are in its way. And that's what's being discussed here. Jesus is that stone that we either stand upon or stumble over. He's the stone that we either build our lives upon or we are crushed by. So would you today come to believe in him, trust in him, stand on him, put your hope in him, 
God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Thirdly, let's talk about a reallocated kingdom. We've got a statement on a reallocated kingdom in verse 43. There, Jesus says, Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. The kingdom of God, the reign of God on earth, will be taken away from those Jewish religious leaders who were rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. God will, as it were, take away the stewardship of the vineyard of God's people that they had been entrusted with but had done so poorly with. Now, you got to just take this in and appreciate how important this part of the story is with Jesus' coming. We tend to think of the Gospels as Jesus coming for us, for me. He came to die for my sins. He came to give me salvation. And all those things are true, but did you hear the kind of the individualism about that? It's me, my, for me. Well, there's more to the story than that. Jesus also came as a judge. Not just the second time when he will come again, but even in his first coming, he comes as a judge. He comes to put an end to a system that had remained so persistently corrupt for so long and no small amount of those Old Testament prophetic writings had been speaking about this judgment that was to come, not just on individuals, not just on Israel as a nation, but, but specifically on the religious leaders, the, the tenants of the vineyard. So a passage like Ezekiel 34 just bemoans these shepherds of the people. They were to be shepherds for the people, caring, protecting, feeding, leading, and they did none of it. And so God says in Ezekiel 34, hundreds of years before Jesus ever comes, I will come and shepherd my people. We can't forget that a big part of why Jesus came was to speak and deliver judgment on religious leaders who had failed God's people for oh so long. So the kingdom of God will be taken away from unbelieving Jewish religious leaders like them, but, verse 43, it will be given to a people, literally a nation, it'll be given to a nation who will produce fruit. In other words, God is now in Jesus making a people of God, of Jew and Gentile, who believe in Jesus and produce his fruit. He's making, as it were, a whole new vineyard. He's repopulating the vineyard now with fruitful people. Oh, we're not perfectly fruitful, I know. 
But Christians can say that they are genuinely changed people and they do some things differently than they used to by God's grace. As Peter put it, you, writing to Jew and Gentile in the first century, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that was the plan all along. It was the plan all along that God would one day go global with his glory and worship and salvation. It started with Israel, but even back in the Abrahamic covenant, the promises of Genesis given to old father Abraham, God was saying that through his seed, he would bless the nations. That's why the Psalms so often speak of the peoples praising you. Let all the peoples, peoples praise you. Nations, people, tongues. That was the plan all along. Thus, from that angle, that it was the plan all along, we might actually speak of the realization of the kingdom, not just the reallocation of the kingdom. It's the realization of the plan of God. Jew and Gentile, trusting in Jesus, being fruitful to God's glory. Don't forget, Christian, you are now his tenants. You are now stewards in his vineyard. You are now responsible to bear fruit to God. And by his grace, he enables us to do it, but we must do it. He has put us in his vineyard to garner fruit for him to his glory, and that is actually for our good. Baptism is such a wonderful picture of that. It's not only a, a portrait of one's identification with Jesus' death and resurrection, but it's also a, a picture of the person being baptized having kind of a their own death in resurrection death to an old self resurrection to a new self don't forget that our passage ends then with fourthly an ironic response an ironic response how did those who Jesus was speaking to and about how did they respond verse 45 when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables they perceived that he was speaking about them and although they were seeking to arrest him they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet there are actually several ironies here at the end I'll list them quickly but first, notice they perceived that in these two parables, Jesus was speaking about them. They eventually put it together that Jesus was inferring that they are the first son in the parable of the two sons. And that Jesus was inferring that they were the wicked tenants in the next parable. 
And presumably, they also understood that Jesus was saying that their rejection of Jesus as the sun, as the stone, would actually be their destruction. But rather than relenting and repenting, they doubled down on their intentions to oppose him. Even after this, they were still seeking to arrest him. And so another irony is this, that these men are still intent on doing the very thing that Jesus just predicted that they would do, even after being warned that their rejection of Messiah would be their destruction. D.A. Carson has the money quote on this. He calls this magnificent yet tragic irony. Magnificent yet tragic irony. And he goes on like this. The religious leaders are told that they will reject Jesus and be crushed. But instead of taking the warning, they hunt for ways to arrest him. And so trigger the very situation that they have been warned about. It's a dramatic example of God's poetic justice. God in the scriptures foretells this very event. And these men, prompted by hatred, rush to bring it to pass. Stubborn unbelief is senseless. It gets real dumb. It doesn't make any sense that these men would get as much as they got and continue as they did. And so if you're not a Christian, you're like, yeah, I'm still there. I don't, everything you're saying is bouncing off me. It sounds like you're speaking Martian. I don't know what, is, I don't even know why I'm here. Well, pray that God would reveal himself to you. You can't fix this on your own. You can't fix your spiritually blind eyes and your spiritually deaf ears. He must do it. Pray that he would do it today. And brothers and sisters, don't be surprised when you encounter others and it's just as silly and stubborn as these religious leaders were in Jesus' day. It's the very nature of sin and spiritual blindness. But thank God that he saved you from it. Thank God that he's given you eyes to see. One last irony, notice that they feared the crowd. That was the only reason that their plan to arrest Jesus wasn't progressing just yet. They feared the crowd. They didn't fear Jesus. They didn't fear the sun. They didn't fear the stone that crushes. They didn't fear the master. They didn't fear the coming judgment. They feared the crowd. Maybe that's a way for you to identify what's going on in your heart today is just to think, what do I fear? What you fear is likely your God. It's likely your idol. It's likely the very thing that you need to replace with Jesus, the cornerstone. Don't fear the crowd. Don't fear your past. Don't fear what people think of you. Don't fear what you'll lose if you... Commit yourself to Jesus. 
Fear instead what Carson called that magnificent yet tragic irony. Magnificent yet tragic irony. What if, what if that was written on your tombstone someday? I mean, thankfully your family won't do that to you. But what if that was a good summary of your life? Instead, what if it was that last bit from Psalm 118 that Jesus quotes? It is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your marvelous grace to us in Jesus. We believe, help our unbelief. Jesus is the cornerstone. May it be so that he's the cornerstone of our lives, the solid rock on which we stand. And for those who are with us who haven't yet come to stand on that solid rock, would all the sand that they stand on right now feel very shaky? And would today be a day they begin to step out and stand on and trust in Jesus, the cornerstone of their lives? Help us even as we sing of this truth in praise and thanks to you. May it be so for our lives and our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.